Welcome friends to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. I am so excited for our guest today. I have Emily Levy with me, coming to you from San Francisco, California, with a beautiful park behind her. And I'm here in Florida, and we're going to talk about advocating, why advocating matters. It's so important sometimes to be the voice. And gifted, talented people, we have a voice. So I've asked Emily to be on the show today to talk about advocating, about her life, about whatever else comes through intuitively. So she's a willing participant in this amazing experience. So come along the ride with us, get a drink and sit down and get ready for an exciting conversation. So welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks so much. I'm, this sounds like it's going to be fun. I'm really glad you invited me. and Thank you for that. Well, everybody, I met Emily through a mutual friend who said, oh, you have to have her on the show. Now, Emily also has a podcast, and she has all kinds of amazing things she's doing around elections. So she, we'll talk about that a little later in the show, and you'll also find all that information in the show notes because I think it's a very important topic. But let's first start with who Emily is. So she lives in San Francisco. We got that part. But Emily, tell us a little bit about where you were raised, kind of how your life has unfolded, and and end up with a little bit about how did you become an advocate? How come that's important to you? Okay. It actually, that actually starts at the beginning of my life. I, I, um, I grew up in San Francisco, though I actually just recently moved back here after a little more than 30 years away. I grew up um, in the 60s in San Francisco, being taken to protest against the Vietnam War by my parents and um, walking precincts for candidates my parents believed in. And so from a very early age, I was involved in kind of seeing how people work for what they want in their communities. And also kind of around with a lot of turmoil going on with the war and the summer of love and all that kind of stuff that was happening. Um, and there were, that was a lot of action about in San Francisco at that time. So, um, so I w that's where I was raised and have lived in California all my life, except for short periods of time elsewhere. Um, and let's see. That 30, 30 or so years that I was gone from San Francisco was mostly in Santa Cruz, where my former partner and I adopted and raised four kids who are now adults. And um, nice. so it's, I think we picked about the hardest way to become a family that anybody could possibly choose, um, including adopting a, a pair of siblings who were 10 and 11 years old from a country, fr from Malaysia, um, and having them arrive not speaking any of the same languages that we spoke. Um, so so I, I guess I have always risen to challenges in various ways, and I really date my, or kind of trace my 
my activism and advocacy work back to toddlerhood when my biggest complaint was it's not fair and I think it's partly a function of the privilege that my family had that I had this idea that it was possible for things to be fair or that they were supposed to be fair but it for as long as I can remember has really not been okay with me when things aren't fair and so my whole life I have done what I can to make things more fair and that started you know like I said I was being taken to protests and things like that but I remember in fourth grade I started a petition in school um, for girls to be allowed to wear pants to school because that was not allowed at that time and it wasn't fair so that was kind of my first leadership act um, I would say before that I was following what my parents were doing so so that's really that's really where it comes from is this just I can't bear it when things aren't fair oh my god I love it and so it's like it's in your DNA <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So you didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I think I'll go be an advocate. You like came out of the womb that way and your parents just fostered it. And, and of course you've taken the difficult road. <laughs> like it, it makes total, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. And it, it's like, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't black lives matter. You know, like that's what not, it was like. My sister got a bigger cookie. I'm not saying, you know, that I had a great ability to have like, analysis of the social situation at that time it was you know it was your family issues sometimes between siblings and stuff that that originally got to me but it extended outward pretty quickly right and so the idea of having fairness which is the the whole construct of justice and having things be just is core to your value system and Absolutely. has been since you were a child, whether it showed up within the family and now, of course, in, in the greater society, but it, it also showed up with adopting four children where two of them didn't know the language. That's a sense of justice and having things be just on the spiritual level, you know, like mm -hmm. that's what that is. So did you ever have any challenges in school growing up being that you were kind of like the petition kid and and standing up for justice like how did that how did i had that to work out academically i had to make my own challenges so um i remember we would have like 20 spelling words a week and we were supposed to put them in set into sentences and some teachers insisted on one word per sentence and some teachers let us use more than one word in a sentence so i would challenge myself to get all 20 words into one sentence because i was bored out of my mind at school um or you know so occasionally a teacher would make the mistake of saying write this in your own words so then i would have to make up words for it to really be in my own words um so so i think challenges were like that i mean there was there i had a low bullshit tolerance and school was very hard because of that because so much of it was busy work or you know history books that lied to us or you know um things that didn't make sense to have us do um work that we were supposed to do even if we'd already learned the thing it was supposed to be teaching us so in in elementary school those are the kinds of challenges that i remember most is that what you're asking about? Well, yes, I am definitely asking exactly that question. And so how did you navigate that where you had to kind of create your own challenges in order to stay interested in any way? Because it obviously was not 
you know, school wasn't stimulating enough. It wasn't matching your skill set. So did you have a hard time with that? Did the adults give you a hard time? Did the teachers give you a hard time or your parents? I think it really depended on the teacher. Like when I had a dynamic, creative teacher, they would totally love it and run with it and let me soar. And when I had um, more narrow-minded teachers, we would butt heads. Mm. Wow. And so I, I remember getting in trouble one time in seventh grade. My, my English teacher, who I really... Um, at the time, what I would have said about her is I thought she was an idiot. I don't like to talk about people that way now. Um, she called my mother and said, I don't know what to do about Emily. She just sits there and glowers at me. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get, the teachers didn't call home very often about me, but when they did, it was memorable. <laughs> <laughs> and so what did your mom do? Like, how did she um, handle the fact that her daughter was an outlier in a way, a maverick, a gifted kid. So you were a gifted kid in a non-gifted school trying to find your way and stimulate yourself to keep yourself interested. So how did your parents handle that? Well, one of the things I remember is in sixth grade, we had a, a teacher who actually turned out to be an alcoholic and I didn't know it at the time, but she was always drunk at school. But she, she would, um, the reading program was this self-paced program that was a series of workbooks and you took a test at the beginning to see which one you were in and then you would do a bunch of pages and there would be a self-test and you do a bunch more pages and then you were supposed to raise your hand and say that you needed the teacher to test you. And I tested out of the top of the series when I took the placement test. And so she said, you know, so there wasn't a book in that series that was at my level. and. There were, I think there were a couple of other kids that, that that was true of as well. And so she said that what I was to do was stand at the front of the classroom and wait for the kids to raise their hands saying they were ready to be tested and write their names on the board so the teacher knew who to test. And that's what I was supposed to do during English time. And my mother heard about this and stormed into the school, you know, after school to talk to her. And she said, that is not a reading program for my child. You figure out you know, it was also, I was horrified by it because it was, you know, I was supposed to also be looking for if they were cheating and that was not going to help me socially to have that role. So my mother went in and said, you've got to figure something else out for her. And so she did. She reached down and opened a cabinet and pulled out a more advanced book and handed it to me. So, you know, that she had that available, but just hadn't offered it up. So my mother, my mother advocated for me a lot, you know, whether it was that or whether it was um, asking for the manager in a grocery store and saying, my child needs to use the bathroom. I don't care whether it's public or not. You can choose between letting her do that or she'll pee right here on the floor. And we always got to use the bathroom that way. So, so, she, so when you talk about advocacy, she was a great model for me in that way. I was just thinking that, you know, like a lot of kids need parents that advocate more, more for them, you know? Yeah. And, and so you, your mom was the great role model advocate and, and she pushed the envelope enough to make sure you were getting your needs met, which, you know, we would hope that every mother would do. Yes. And, um, but that's not the case. So that, that's a really funny story. That's hilarious. And the teacher had the book right there. Yep and was going to take the easier, softer, avoidant road had your mom not advocated. And that's part of the power of advocating is using your voice, right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> that corrects me up. So 
you went through high school. How did high school go? Was high school more challenging as you, as you got older? High school was, was more it? challenging, and I was fortunate to be able to go to an alternative high school that was actually private, um, where there was a lot of independent work, and there was, there was no holding anybody back there from what they wanted mm -hmm. to get involved in. So that was, I mean, socially, it was a really hard time for me, but um, academically, it was a lot better than elementary so, school had, and junior high had been. So socially is usually the difficulty for most gifted people, especially in high school teenage years. And so what were some things that if you would have had that support at that time, if any people would have known, the adults would have known, what could have, you think could have helped that teenage girl not feel so socially not in the groove? Oh boy. Um, well, one thing was that I was struggling with my sexual identity and it was the seventies and it wasn't, you know, nobody was, I'm a lesbian. Nobody was, was out. There was no information available. There was no one to go to talk to with questions about that. So that certainly would have made a big difference and hopefully is different, very different now in most places, though I don't believe it is everywhere. Certainly not everywhere around the world and even every, in the United States, I don't think that's true everywhere. Right. Uh, so, so I think that would have made a big difference. I think, um, you know, a lot of it was around drugs and to be cool, you had to use drugs and I wasn't gonna do that. And um, it's funny, I was just thinking this morning while I was walking my dog about this, that when, I remember um, my daughter, my older daughter had friends who were twins and them coming over when they were in high school and talking about how, um, sorry, I just need a moment. Um, the house they came over to just burned down. <laughs> I don't live there anymore. I haven't lived there for 20 years, but as we're recording this, the fires are going in California and that house just burned down two nights ago. And this is my first time of mm -hmm. kind of remembering something that happened in there knowing that it no longer exists. So um, so they came over, these twins came over and they were talking about how they would get teased for being dorks at school, you know, and not being cool. And I thought about it and I said to them, you know, the people who I know, like me, who, you know, who are like that in high school are much happier with their lives now than the people mm. that I know who were the cool kids who were using drugs or, you know, who were um, more, who, who were more in, in the in crowd in high school. Right. They, and just to kind of hang on. I, I don't know how helpful that is to be told to hang on because a few years seems like forever when you're that young. Um, but I, I think, I think some of it is, Well, there's, a, there's certainly a huge part about having enough resources that the adults in the environment can pay attention to each kid and what they need. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. And that, you know, because it's not, it's, there's no blanket answer for what everybody needs other than to be listened to and for someone to get them. Mm -hmm. Right. I always say that the, the two biggest human needs are to be heard and understood. That's the someone gets me mm -hmm. and to be her and to be cared about. 
whether it's loved or cared about, like that you know that the person cares about you and that they hear you, that those are the big needs of yeah. just the core and so needs. many kids don't get that growing up, in right. sc- especially in school. Especially in school. And a lot of kids that are the geeky, nerdy, smart kids get so over-reinforced for their intelligence that sometimes the adults miss the sensitive, emotional part and the, the need to be connected to or the need to be cared about. Yes. Because it's just so feeding into the head. And so that asynchrony of the development really gets exaggerated. That's true. And it's, and it's kind of, it's a a corollary is like my daughter, I was just talking about, got a ton of attention for her physical appearance and she has had a really hard time and she, I had, she was 10 when we adopted her. So a lot of this had already formed, but she's had a really hard time believing that she has any value other than how she looks. Mm -hmm. So I think it's part of that whole idea that we get put into these boxes of this is the smart kid. This is the pretty kid. This is the athletic kid. This is whatever. And there's no, there's rarely a holistic appreciation of human beings as complex and valuable for everything about us and i totally agree and i and i see it still even though it's better i think but i still see the compartmentalization like because i i was always seen for my intelligence and i'm short and so it's like and i'm blonde and so there's always been all that but i was also an athlete too and so there was but people couldn't see those different things and they would be shocked when it, and I'm like, what do you mean? You know, it's always been there. And so it's so true that still, still the world is trying to push people into one single box and we're not allowed to get out of it. And so when we push those boxes as gifted, talented people, we're going to, when we push the limits and say, no, hold on a second, this is who I really am. And let's pay attention to who everybody else is multidimensionally because there's so much more going on then that's the game changer. Yeah. So I'm, I just want to say I'm really short too. And that's it. I think it's such an un, mis, misunderstood area of like of oppression is how short people get treated and how much harder it is for us to, to, to get respected. And I, I have to say that I'm really appreciative of the internet and how much I get to like, show up in a way that people have no idea how short I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get treated differently. Yes. I noticed that too. I'm glad you brought that up because I have a lot of friends who are tall for their, you know, women who are six feet and tall and taller. And I, and they, one of them actually was sharing yesterday that, you know, she had to really learn how to embrace her height because she was being judged for how tall she was. And I said, well, the same is true and more for people who are shorter. I said, I have to use a step stool in my home almost all the time. Uh, Nothing is easy. When I was in high school, I had to make all my own clothes pretty much because they didn't make petite clothes much then except for old ladies. Mm -hmm. And everything takes an extra step or two when you're shorter. And I think it is a place of, of oppression and judgment and that kind of thing. And, you know, we learn to deal with it because we're in these bodies, but it takes that extra effort that I don't think people realize what it's taking. And just like with other areas of oppression, there's, there's this, well, I guess not always subtle, but in this case, it tends to be subtle kind of minimizing of our value. People literally are looking down on us and, 
and that, that figuratively becomes true too. I know I was, I worked for a long time in the coaching industry and as, as I kind of developed my reputation there, got included in events that were for more gradually more and more successful coaches and the crowds got taller and taller and taller, like the, the more kind of higher end, whatever we even call it that right higher um, um, groups I was in the more really tall people there were and the fewer short people there were. It was really interesting to watch. Wow. I never noticed that, but I, I had a flashback when you were saying that. I was in a, in a um, big event with a bunch of influential people and I got hit in the face. I can't tell you how many times by tall people putting their hands on their hips in the crowd and their elbow would elbow my face. Yep. And I, so I started walking around kind of with my hands up watching to make sure that the elbow wouldn't elbow my eye or my face because I kept getting hit. And I remember saying something to somebody, one of my friends, I go, I keep getting hit. And they don't even know, they don't even see me. They don't even aware of me. Yep. And, um, and the person, my, my friend said, well, that's because your energy is soft. I said, I don't think it's because my energy is soft. I have nice energy, but I don't think that's what it is. Yeah, that's not what it is. <laughs> Who elbows people with soft energy? I mean, oh, let's but, go find someone with soft energy and elbow them. I don't know. <laughs> and they didn't know it. And they, they were totally unaware. They weren't trying to do it. Of course not. You know, but it was You're like. invisible. Totally invisible. And people talking right over my head like I wasn't even there. And, and I was like, wow, do I really have any value here? You know, I remember going through a lot of that those same things because of that height difference you know yeah the internet does work in our favor <laughs> that way <laughs> that's a good i always point. like to make sure so look look now i'm a short person <laughs> now i'm a tall person <laughs> and you're really the same emily yes and and that's the interesting thing about perception right and and people who think they know something based on what they're perceiving, but they're choosing their perception. So good point, you know, and I'm like, well, I don't know. We could sit tall or we could hide. Maybe I'll do a whole podcast where you can only see this much of me. <laughs> oh, that'd be pretty funny. Like those old cartoons you drew in high school, right? <laughs> oh my God. I just, I'm not thinking of what, what, what the cartoons are. Where we used to draw like the little line and then the face with the little nose and little hands looking over like the little person looking. Oh, we I didn't do that. Draw, okay. We used okay. to draw those little doodles when I was when I was in high school or junior high or something, and it was just. Otherwise, we were bored in class, and so we're mm -hmm. just going to do something to entertain ourselves so we do not get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And then when this is done, we can go do good about our life. And I had a really good high school that was really challenging, but still. I was drawing little people. <laughs> so as you grew in, into your profession more and more, tell us about your advocacy work. Like how come, like you were an advocate when you were a kid mm -hmm. and it, it's the whole idea of justice, which is a form of perfectionism that comes to gifted people. It's a natural part of our DNA is to care about justice and things being right correct i mean you know like it in a way that works it's normal and so you were aware of it and could feel it and see it and experience in you from the time you were really little so now you do it professionally and you have been for a while so how did that how did you kind of create that piece where you allowed that characteristic of who you are to be 
the lead in your vocation because not everybody does that. Some people, a lot of people have the justice, but they don't put it in their vocation in the same way, interesting way, I believe that you've mm -hmm. done. I've listened to some of your podcasts. They're really fun and they really make you think. So tell us about that piece of the journey because I think that's very exciting how you brought them together in a really powerful way. Okay. Uh, so at some point in my 20s, I realized that I had grown up with this sense that I was, the words that were in my mind were destined for greatness, but that I had absolutely no idea what that meant, what, it, what was expected of me, who it was that was expecting it, what I was supposed to do about it. But anything I thought about doing felt like it wasn't good enough. And at the same time, um, I, around the time I, or actually a little earlier than this, as I hit adulthood, I got a chronic illness and became disabled and was really limited in my ability to interact with the world for about 30 years from that illness. And then um, mostly recovered from it about 10 years ago. So, um, so in the, in the time of my life when we're at least in the United States, expected to figure out what our career is going to be, I wasn't able to have one. Okay. And so I was, I was pretty much homebound and I didn't have very many hours a day where I could do much other than take care of myself. So um, as I gradually, it also gave me a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do, but I didn't know if I would ever be able to do any of it. So um, it's, it's a little bit hard to, to figure out how to answer your question with that as sort of the background of what was going on. But I think mm -hmm. this is maybe, um, maybe the, the place to go with it is, so as I mentioned before, my former partner and I adopted four kids and the first three we adopted were already older. The first one was five and then a, a year and a half later we adopted siblings who were 10 and 11 and then um and then a few years later we adopted a baby so she's a lot younger than than her three siblings and there's a way in which i thought of raising my kids as my work in the world which mm -hmm. will be familiar to the parents who are listening sure. and specifically that i thought about it as my social change work you know to 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 raise these kids who all had a really rough start and to try to do it in a way that instilled some values in the, uh, them about justice and, and that sort of thing. But when my youngest came along, I realized my oldest kids didn't see me as an advocate or an activist because because I wasn't doing anything else really, except for, you know, maybe attending an occasional protest if I was able. And then I wanted my youngest to see me as an active person working to change the world. And um, I, I mean, I wanted them all to see it, but I kind of felt like I had missed the boat with the older ones. And then it was time for me to get involved in, an, in another way. And I, I didn't know what to do. There were so many issues that I cared about. And I, it was really hard to choose which one to work on. And then one night I went to the movies to see a movie called The Corporation, which is a really horrifying documentary about how horrible corporations are. And I happened to be sitting in the movie theater next to the receptionist at 
um, my doctor's office. And the next day I went into the office for an appointment and, and I said, what did you think of the movie? And she said, my husband and I were up all, it was horrifying. My husband and I were up for hours talking about what are we going to do about it? And I thought, and I said, great, what did you decide? And she said, oh, we're not going to do anything. Wow. And I, and I went out to my car and I spent an hour writing about that and about how like kind of discovering in myself this passion for helping people figure out what it is they can do and actually do it not just sit around talking about it mm -hmm. and that was kind of the first time that I really felt like I knew what that greatness was supposed to be for me you know that I that what I was here to do was to help people find their own way to make the world better and give them the support they need to do it and so um I didn't so at the time I was working, I had a business because it was what I could do with my health the way it was working from home as a medical transcriptionist, which is about the most boring thing you could do for a living. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's not true, but it's like it, it's very repetitious and you have to sit really still and it, it's just it's you could do your laundry at the same time, but you can't drink a cup of coffee at the same time. It's very peculiar. Anyway, not really our point. Um, so. <laughs> So I decided the first thing that I would do, having had this revelation, was teach a class and see, like, just experiment with how can I help people with this. So I taught, just offered a class in my community, put signs up around on bulletin boards that said, I was offering this little class that was called From Good Intentions to Powerful Action, How to Make a Difference. And I had six or seven people in it. It was six weeks long, and it really... I could tell that there was something there, which was really what I wanted to find out. And, and that was in 2004. 2000, is that right? Yeah, that was in 2004. I feel like I'm getting away from your question. Am I? Am I, I what I want to hear, which is exactly what you're saying, is how did you transition from being an advocate to professionally being an advocate, which you're okay. exactly saying. Okay, great. So, so that was in 2004. Uh -huh. Then something happened in November, November 2004 in the United States, which was a presidential election. And this was the George Bush running for a second term. I won't say re-election because he wasn't elected the first time. Um, he was installed by the Supreme Court, basically. And, and um, it was, so it was George W. Bush running for his second term and John Kerry running for his first term. And um, I ended up volunteering with a statistician who was on his own doing a, a precinct level statistical analysis of whether or not the election had been stolen in the state of Ohio, which was the state that if it had gone to Kerry, Kerry would have won. If it had gone to Bush, Bush would win. And I didn't know a lot about elections then, but it seemed like something had happened that wasn't fair. And as we know, that's your hot I think spot. something's not fair. <laughs> I have to do something. So what I, what I did know how to do, because I was a mom and because I'd done various projects, is I knew how to run a project. I knew how to coordinate a project, and I ended up coordinating this project for this statistician and um, 
So I found the people and assigned different roles to them based on what they were good at and took his research and tried to get it out into the world, which is very hard to do and th things like that. And through that, I came to understand a lot more about what the problems are with the election system in the United States and how um, our votes, it was not all our votes at that time, but it, it is virtually now, are counted by computers. And those computers can be um, programmed to produce any result regardless of how people vote. Do you think I thought that was fair? Absolutely not. That got a fire lit and you're like, no tomorrow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, so I ended up getting some positions being paid to work on getting rid of those electronic voting systems and um, running investigations of elections and training people to um, observe the processes that happen in an election office after an election and things like that. And, um, and through that, learned how to build a website and write a blog and run an email list and all these kinds of things that people need to do in order to run a business online. I was learning about it from an organizational perspective working for these election, um, they call themselves election integrity groups at that time. And, um, but it wasn't enough to make a living. And then I went, I, but and I really still wanted to do this thing that, that that little community class was about. So I went to a business training to learn how to make that into a business. And the leader of that training said to me, nobody's ever going to pay for that, that kind of help of what can, how can I work for social justice? No one's ever going to pay you for that. Find something else to do. And I was really devastated hmm. by that. And and at the same time, I saw something happening in that training that I thought wasn't fair, which was all these people had paid for this training and they were learning how to have online businesses, but they didn't have the technical skills to do the stuff that they were being told to go do. Mm. And I knew how to do that stuff. So I thought, I'll just do it for all of their businesses while I'm figuring out, like picking myself up off the ground because my dream just got crushed. And so I ended up for about eight years having a business where what I was doing was helping coaches and holistic health practitioners and other service-based small businesses get their businesses online. So I was building websites and teaching them how to do email marketing and teaching them how to do social media and all that stuff, which, I mean, usually people learn stuff like that in business and then take it into the nonprofit sector. And I had kind of done the opposite. Right. Yes. But it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't filling me up. I was helping other people go after their dreams, but my right. own had been crushed. Right. And, yeah. um, and I kept like, I kept thinking, you know, if I would think I want to get back to this thing I wanted to do, I would, I didn't believe that it was possible. And eventually, and, and, and what I said to myself, I still had my youngest at home, who, as I said, is much younger than, than my other kids. And I thought, I just need to do this thing that I know I can make a living at, even though it wasn't always a great living, um, of working with coaches and holistic health practitioners until she's on her own. And then I can focus back on mm -hmm. this thing that might not make any money. So every time... 
I kept trying to f go back to this helping people figure out how they want to make change in the world of business, something would pull me away. And often it was an election project. So all those things were going on at the same time of me like trying to do this one thing and then elections pulling me away over here and needing to move, make a living pulling me away over here. And a couple years ago, really after the 2016 election, so it's more than a couple of years ago, I thought if, if people aren't willing to pay now for getting help figuring out how they can make a difference, they never will. You know, like the, if, it's, if it's ever going to be possible to do this, now is the time. So I focused myself again on that effort, ran a class with a very similar title to the one that, that original one, I think it was called um, from good intentions to powerful action for social justice, how to make a difference, something like that. I started a brand that's how to make a different, no, it's power to make a difference.com and have taught some online classes, led a retreat, have, have done some of that work. And I also kind of knew that with the, the gravity of the situation in the United States and the world right now, that when this 2020 election was coming around, I was really going to need to focus on that. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I kept wanting, I guess in, in conclusion to your question, I kept wanting to make a living doing the stuff that mattered to me. And, I, and it took me, like, I haven't figured out how to do that in a consistent way yet. And I started this new organization, which you mentioned at the top of the interview, in January of this year, and I am now getting paid to do that work. Um, and it's hard to know how long that will last, but but for now I'm getting paid to do that work. So I feel like I have brought together a bunch of the pieces that I've been assembling in my life all this time about um, kind of how to make a living doing work, making the world more fair. Right. And, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, that's the trajectory of almost every gifted person is the, the vision keeps following us around, the calling keeps following us, and all these other things keep happening. And then right around the time we're 50 or so, it all weaves together and creates the vision. And so the trajectory of somebody that has this deep, these deep burning issues going on is not the same as everybody else out there. It doesn't look the same no Thank matter you. what, it just doesn't look the same. And so we weave them all together and then something more amazing comes out of it. And so that is when you founded Scrutineers, which I think is a great name. Thank you. So tell everybody. It's a word actually. It's, it's great. It's what election monitors and investigators are called in some other countries. And I discovered it watching an Australian TV show and I loved it. So um, that's, that's, so, so actually what happened and how, how Scrutineers came to be is first the name came from watching that TV show and I like the next day went out and bought scrutineers.org and um, but I didn't know what it was going to be. I just knew something sometime was going to be that and then in order to develop the, my power to make a difference course, I was um, taking a a training about how to use an online tool called Mighty Networks, which is an, it's a platform for creating online communities, membership sites. And um, I wanted to use it for my class, but the more that I learned about it through their training program, 
the more ideas kept coming to me about how that particular platform could really serve the election protection movement that I was a part of and do something and fill some gaps in the movement that I thought were missing. So by the time I finished that course, I had kind of take, taking that course, I had set aside the idea of um, focusing now on power to make a difference and realized that what I really wanted to do was build an online community within Mighty Networks to do to work on election protection. And so I already had the name and I brought those together and it took a few months to kind of get it up and running and we launched in January. We have 600 members at the moment. We're growing really fast. We're hoping for, or the plan is 10,000 by the election and because the, our growth strategies are exponential, I think we'll get there. Um, and we're teaching people how to do election monitoring, how to look for so there's there's kind of two parts there's protect the voters part and protect the votes part the protect the voters part is about fighting voter disenfranchisement trying to make sure that everybody who has a right to vote gets to vote and eventually also expanding the right to vote um, and then the protect the votes part is the election security part which is about what how the votes are handled by the election system um, the vulnerability of the ways that we count votes and the, the, there are actually ways that people with not very much training can monitor the counting of votes and um, and sometimes discover problems in the way that the votes are being processed that um, that catch problems that, with how their that votes are counted. I don't know, I said that really badly. Let me try that one again. <laughs> Now, it made you made total sense to me because what you're saying is that somebody it doesn't take a lot of training to be able to to go into a, a situation and be able to tell if the way they're counting the votes lines up with what they're saying the way they're counting the votes is <laughs> that it all or, yeah. is fair and just and catching manipulation behind the scenes kind of thing yes and it's it's tricky because the way the votes are counted inside computers as I said before and you can't actually see them doing it but when there's manipulation of the software it produces some evidence if you know where to look for that evidence sometimes you can catch it yes. so we're training people how to do that oh that's very exciting and so that's at scrutineers.org and we're going to put that link in the show notes so thank you um, I think it's a really important that people really start paying attention to justice and fairness and what's the right thing, um, whatever that means and whatever the situation is. So that's really, really fascinating. And so what do you see moving forward with scrutineers? It's going to get really busy here. It's going to get heated up. <laughs> it is going to get heated up. And often in this work, we're busier after the election than before, because like I said, we're, pro mm -hmm. we're observing what happens with the votes after the election. There's actually a lot that we're doing leading up to the election as well. And then what I would like to see is for the work that we do that we do this year when it's an active major election cycle to evolve into um, legislative work to try to get some of the best practices put into law in states around the country and nationally as well um, to work with election officials a lot of whom honestly they, they they their jobs are so hard to run an election is so hard and complicated any piece that they can let somebody else do 
it, there's a huge temptation to let somebody else do it, right? So when the vendor who sells them the voting system says, oh, we'll take care of programming your, your ballot in there for you, we'll do this for you, we'll do the auditing for you, like whatever pieces of it the voting mm -hmm. system vendor offers to do, the election officials are very tempted to let them. And I would like to help election departments, election boards around the country learn what they need to know to run to run fairer elections and i think there's a lot that that they're not aware of and it's kind of a tricky thing because nobody wants somebody coming in from the outside telling them how to do their job so we're really working on building relationships with election officials around the country teaching our members how to do that so that we can work with them to make the elections better Right. It, it, so once they start realizing that the mission is to be an ally and support and helping rather than coming after them, then the defensiveness will most likely go down with the relationship being built. Right. And I think that's part of like why I like to think of it as advocacy rather than, you know, even though I've been an, I will say I've been an activist all my life, this work to me fits more into the advocacy realm. And can I tell one more short story? Sure. That, so, um, where I lived in Santa Cruz, California, I was already paying attention to this election stuff and Santa Cruz um, had to buy a new election system. Okay, I have to tell, this is a story within a story. They had a little demo of the different systems they were considering at the bookstore. And I went to it and, and I was looking at the different systems and I knew some about them. And I went up to one of the vendors and I said, oh, is this model the one that was used to steal the presidential election in Ohio in 2004? And he said, no, that was a different model. <laughs> that got in the newspaper. Um, so <laughs> moving right along. Um, oh, my word. <laughs> so, so a small group of us advocates showed up at the, um, the Board of Supervisors meeting, which is kind of like a city council, but at, a, at the county level. That's what we have in California. Um, to advocate against the purchase of any of these electronic voting systems and we lost that battle and one of the systems did get purchased and then we went to the election official and said other places that are purchasing these systems like we really wish you hadn't done this but um, other places that are purchasing these systems are sometimes really getting can I say on your podcast screwed over uh -huh. by the vendors in the contracts and we want to tell you some things to look for to make sure they're not in the contract. And, and I will say that she, the election official, considering that we had just been like lambasting her in the, in the Board of Supervisors meetings, that she was willing to meet with us and listen to what we had to say was pretty amazing. And she mm -hmm. later told me that we really saved her on that contract by educating her about how not to get cheated. So instead of just saying she's the enemy now because she bought this system that we didn't want bought we worked with her to try to make the best of what was then the situation that we needed to deal with so that's kind of to me that's more what an advocate does than yes. just like we didn't just stand outside and hold signs but we um you know we tried to make it make the best of the system that we could Right, and there's a lot of education involved and there's a lot of connection and relationship and 
and helping people see things in a way that's non-threatening and also educating so that they can then be empowered in whatever position they're in to make choices that align better for justice and fairness. Yes. And you can also kind of tell to some extent uh -huh. that if somebody really won't let you see the stuff that even the, they know that's public information, that raises some red flags and you know that's a, a place you need to pay extra close attention. Yes, absolutely. That makes total sense. So I only have a couple more questions. This is so exciting. I love talking to you. This is like, wow. Um, this I is stuff it. I never get to talk about, so it's fun. A lot of it. <laughs> and, and well, it's very, it, I mean, justice and fairness is, is core to so many people and they don't get to talk about it very much because advocacy work is so important and needed in the world in general. Mm -hmm. and, and when people are willing to step up and take action, like my Someone Gets Me community is all about intense gifted people taking action um, and using our gifts and talents and abilities to take action instead of just being like that receptionist or her husband who, oh my God, this is disturbing, talk about it and then do nothing. And so it's totally part of like my DNA in, in a similar way, you know, in that sense. Mm -hmm. So what's the most memorable food you've ever eaten? Oh, before, can we go somewhere else before that? Sure. You can go okay. anywhere you so, want to go. Okay. And I, I will think about what the most memorable food is I've ever eaten in, <laughs> in a moment. But um, the thing that you just said about using our gifts and talents is so, so, so important to me. And so like when somebody comes into Scrutineers, one of the first things we do is ask them to fill out a survey and it, it asks them kind of, what are your skills? Because we want to be able to put those to use. You know that. So, if somebody comes in and they're a graphic artist, great. We totally need that. If somebody comes in, yesterday we had an attorney come and say, "What help do you need from an attorney?" And I was able to tell her exactly what we needed. And so, and mm -hmm. for some people, it's I can coordinate volunteers, or I know how to write a business plan, or I'm a good, I'm good at having fundraising conversations, or and even things that don't seem to be applicable to the work. Yes. Often there's a way that you can, we can make them applicable. So I, it's something that's really fun for me to help figure out how to use people's different combinations of skills to find them a role that will be exciting and meaningful to them and really helpful to the work. Whether oh, it's in scrutineers yeah. or whether it's through my power to make a difference work. I love doing that. Yeah, that's, that's very important because so many people, our gifts come so natural to us that we don't realize how valuable they are and how much they're yeah, needed because they're just exactly. so natural. You know? Yep. Yeah. So true. True. All right. The food question. The food question. What's your most memorable food that you've ever eaten? Memorable now. Yes, I know. This one's going to be memorable. <laughs> there was this tiny hole in the wall sushi restaurant in San Francisco that I used to go to like starting 40 years ago and it's not there anymore so don't try to find it but it didn't even have actually I was going to say it didn't have a sign it did have a sign but the sign was blank you just had to know about it to go there and after a while of going there and loving it they added a thing to the menu which was dessert sushi it was chocolate or vanilla Haagen-Dazs sushi and I was just not sure about it, but I was curious. And one time I was there with a group of six people. I thought we can each just have one bite in case it's awful because there's six pieces in an order. So we ordered one of each. And what I was expecting was like 
ice cream that had been cut into the shape of a roll and maybe rolled in fruit roll up or something and sliced. Oh no, that was not what it was. It was your rice in rolled in nori seaweed with melted ice cream all in between the rice and then pop it into your mouth and discover there was also wasabi horseradish in it. So imagine rice, nori, horseradish, and chocolate ice cream all in your mouth at the same time. That oh was memorable. my. <laughs> the vanilla wasn't bad, I have to say, but the chocolate, it was a one-time experience. Yeah, one and done. Yeah. <laughs> all righty then. I don't even know if I can imagine all those tastes at the same time. <laughs> that's, oh, that's I, I don't even know that. That's in my, my, my awareness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay, so I have one last question. Okay. If we were going to put a billboard up that the whole world was going to see with your message on it, what would it be? Having listened to what I was saying all through this interview, I guess what I have to say is it would be like life is better when things are fair for everyone. Oh, that's beautiful. Life is better when things are fair for everyone. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. That's a great billboard. So uh, we've covered a lot of ground and I want to make sure that there's nothing on your heart or soul that you really wanted to share today that I didn't ask you about or you didn't get to share so that as we conclude, you feel complete and fulfilled with our time together. Thank you. That was such a beautiful way to ask that question. Something actually just came up in my mind as I was, we were saying that, that, my, that billboard answer addressing your billboard question that I think I would like to say, which is um, in the realm of elections, whether we're talking about protecting the voters or protecting the votes, the, the people whose votes are most in danger of not being allowed to be cast or not being counted accurately are people of color, especially black people, Latinx people, and to some extent college students also, primarily people of color. And for those of us who are white, or for those of us who have other kinds of privilege, I think it's really important that we, while working for a world where we don't have underprivileged and overprivileged people, that we figure out how to use what privileges we have um, to help people who have less. Mm -hmm. And to that end, in Scrutineers, we just did a, a training, which is recorded and available for people to watch, called repurposing privilege and it's kind of the way that we're trying to uh, one of the ways we're trying to address that issue of discrimination and voting is like if you have if you have those privileges of around race class age education level able-bodiedness um, etc how can you use those to help make sure that the voting rights are protected of the people who have less privilege so i think because every, your audience is an audience of of gifted and talented people that is a privilege to have a brain that works that in those ways mm -hmm. and that well and so whether or not people come join scrutineers and want to work on the elections i want to introduce that as a way to think about how you want to help in the world is what are the privileges you have and how can you, not in a patronizing way, but in a really respectful way, share and use those privileges for the benefit of others who have less. 
Oh, that's beautiful. I'm glad you shared that because I totally am with you on it, 100%. So if you've been really excited like me to listen to Emily Levy talk, I, I could talk to her forever. I have so many other things. Oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. And, and you're interested, go check out scrutineers.org and I'll put her contact information in the show notes so that you can also learn more about her with her bio, but do something with your privilege for the good for all. And you will know that you heard that reminder to your spirit from Emily today on Someone Gets Me. So thank you, Emily, so much for taking all the time to being on the show with us and <laughs> answering all my questions. And Thanks for and, asking such great questions and for, for and, inviting me to be here. Oh, it was awesome. So remember, everybody, to keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star and you're here on purpose with a purpose. So it's time that we get out there and we do the right thing for the right reasons. So until the next episode of Someone Gets Me, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.